On my previous threat today on Midday, it's Smart Nutrition with our good friend, the nutrition diva, Monica Reinagel. We want to talk about some new studies concerning two substances that many folks are quite fond of, alcohol and a locale sweetener called erythritol. If you have a question or a comment for Monica, you can give us a call, 410-662-8780. That's a different number than the number you use to pledge. Our email address is midday at wipr.org, and we're looking at tweets as well at midday WIPR. Monica Reinagel is a licensed nutritionist and the author of six books, including Nutrition Diva's Secrets for a Healthy Diet. She's the creator of the weekly Nutrition Diva podcast, which has been one of iTunes' most highly ranked health and fitness podcasts since it debuted back in 2008. And she also hosts a great podcast called Change Academy. Monica Reinagel joins us on Zoom. Hey, Monica, welcome back. Thank you so much, Tom. And thank you for that nice introduction. But I want to add one thing that you left off, which is that I am also a longtime sustaining member of WIPR. And we appreciate that. We (laughs) very much appreciate that, you and everybody else. Um, So thanks to you and thanks to everybody who has stepped up, uh, you know, for this spring membership drive. Yeah, I definitely want to invite all the listeners to join me in supporting because I'm not just someone who stops by every once in a while to share information. I also tune in every single day to get my information. So please join me. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. That's an excellent job of buttering me up. And, uh, you know, <laughs> I am looking forward to talking to you about two two things that, that folks really do uh, have quite an affection for. Uh, we're going to talk about artificial sweeteners, this, this thing called erythritol in a second. But let's talk about booze. Let's talk about alcohol. Because mm. yeah. um, there's some confusing research on the effects of alcohol consumption that you've uh, talked about in your podcast and we're going to talk about today. So let, let's start with some misconceptions. Um, tell us about red wine. Lots of people think red wine is like, you know, next to medicine. It, it, it's, <laughs> it's, it's like really good for you. Others say, you know, you, should, you just shouldn't drink a drop of alcohol. All right. Let's start with just red wine. What do you think? Well, red wine does have that reputation for being the most healthful alcoholic beverage that you can pick. It's not entirely deserved. It's based on the fact that red wine does contain an antioxidant called resveratrol. Maybe you've heard of that. They've done some research on resveratrol and, and they've seen that it has various effects in the body. But you can get resveratrol from a number of different foods. You don't have to get it from red wine, although red wine does contain it. But the real bottom line here is that what whatever health benefits we can attribute to the modest consumption of alcohol is really not due to the resveratrol, but it's due to the ethanol alcohol that it contains. And that's common to all alcoholic beverages. So we really can't put red wine up on a special pedestal from a health perspective. That may be your quaff of choice, but um, it really is no better for you than other alcoholic beverages. So like, how about beer? Um, There's a guy uh, that you quote, a guy named Charles Bamforth, 
uh, who says a half a liter of beer uh, gives you all sorts of daily requirements for things like niacin and vitamin C and a host of other things. They, he's trying to make the case that, you know, beer is not only enjoyable, but it's good for you. Does that <laughs> hold up? Well, there are some nutrients in beer because they brew it out of plants. And so some of the nutrients that are in those grains in the hops do make it into the final beverage. So I guess if you're looking for uh, some extra reasons to enjoy a draft, uh, you could cite the vitamins. But again, to the extent that there may be any modest health benefits to the moderate consumption of beer, it's not because of the B vitamins. It is because of the alcohol that it contains. So this resveratrol that you mentioned, which is in mm-hmm. red wine, it's also, uh, I guess, a little bit in beer too, right? Is that right? Are they? In, it's in both uh, yeah, drinks? you can get resveratrol, first of all, from unfermented grape juice and grapes, but also from berries and different nuts and vegetables. It is available from from other foods. And resveratrol is what's called a polyphenolic antioxidant, mm-hmm. which, is a, which is a term that I like to use uh, when I'm in the mood to impress you, Monica. And so yes, it you makes know, you sound so smart. It does, you know, and sounding smart is as close as I get to smart because, you know, being, <laughs> actu- being actually smart is just a, a dream deferred but um so so these these polyphenolic antioxidants um as it turns out can also be in non-alcoholic beers and and there's even non-alcoholic wine out there on the market too right Mm -hmm. yes and uh, and as i said unfermented grape juice so if you just want to drink regular old grape juice or eat grapes you can get those resveratrol antioxidants but you know these are the same types of antioxidant resveratrol is a very specific that's kind of its first name okay but the family name antioxidants phenolic antioxidants there's lots of them and we can get them from all different kinds of foods usually the fresh fruits and vegetables nuts legumes all those healthy things we're always talking about they all contain Many of them contain a variety of those polyphenolic antioxidants. So, Monica Reinagle is the nutrition diva. We're talking about nutrition today, specifically at the moment, alcohol. 410-662-8780 if you have a question or comment for Monica. That's a different number than the number you use to make a pledge in our spring membership campaign. Our email is midday at wipr.org, and you can tweet us at midday. WIPR. So let's talk then, Monica, a little bit about the effects of the alcohol itself, this ethanol. Um, you write that uh, it does seem to have some anti-inflammatory effects uh, and it reduces clotting. I know you did a whole book on uh, anti-inflammation stuff in, in people's diets. Um, so so there are some some benefits from the alcohol. Let's make sure that we know what those might be. Right. It's, there is the, the health benefit that we have been able to consistently observe with, again, moderate alcohol consumption. It's always important that we stipulate that is a reduction in heart disease risks. And that would include things like blood clotting and heart attacks and strokes. And that's because alcohol does have that, that blood thinning effect, um, a mild blood thinning effect. So if you're consuming moderate amounts of it on a regular basis, you're going to be getting that benefit. And that can lead to this modest reduction in heart disease risks. And that's really the whole story in terms of alcohol's benefits. But I want to make sure that we stipulate that these benefits are available with moderate consumption because alcohol 
display something we call a J-shaped curve. And that means a little bit of alcohol does seem to reduce overall risks, mostly through that blood thinning effect, but more than a little bit quickly starts to increase your risks of various diseases and and unpleasant outcomes like death. So, so you really, if you are going to consume alcohol at all, you really want to keep it in that sweet spot so that you, and not even in my mind, it's not about chasing the benefits. It's just about avoiding the risks. And when it comes to, to, to those risks, um, Mm -hmm. the, the, the key here is moderation, right? Right. And this is a word that you drop all the time when you come (laughs) over here and it, and it, it's so Frank, annoying, isn't it, it? It really it bothers me, Monica. I, right. mean, I think we should have a conversation <laughs> about that because I, I, you know, moderation is one of those words I just simply can never remember the definition of. But what what does moderate alcohol consumption mean, sort of officially? Well, this is why we're actually having this conversation because this has been a little bit of a moving target in recent years. So for decades, we've kind of had one party line in terms of our public health agencies that defined moderate consumption of alcohol as no more than one drink a day for women, two drinks a day for men. Tragically unfair, but that's how that cookie crumbles, right? And that is the There, I've got you on record. Moderation (laughs) is tragically unfair. (laughs) No, it's unfair that the the men have a higher threshold, but there's, there's various reasons for that. So that's the definition that we've all been taught for moderation. And we have assumed or we have stated that as long as your consumption fits that pattern, that alcohol consumption is harmless and maybe even slightly beneficial, again, through that effect on heart disease risk. Now, about five years ago, six years ago in 2018, a group called the Global Burden of Disease Research Group. This is uh, an offshoot of the World Health Organization. So it's an international consortium. They threw a bunch of cold water on that decades long conventional wisdom by analyzing a bunch of data and concluding that there was actually no amount of alcohol that could be considered safe, that even the tiniest amount of alcohol was associated with some small increase in risk. And what they were specifically looking at is what they call all-cause mortality. So they weren't breaking it out by cause of death. They were just looking at, if you drink, what is your risk of dying in any particular year? So that was kind of a big deal that we went from saying like, yeah, a little bit, no problem, might even help a little bit, to this new conclusion that there's actually no amount that could be considered absolutely harmless. So at that point, if you continue, if you choose to continue to drink, now you're in the business of kind of weighing the whatever benefits you feel it's providing for you against some level of risk. And for women, speaking of tragically unfair, um, they also determine uh, that any alcohol in any amount, there's no amount that's good, appears to increase the risk of breast cancer. Now, of course, men can get breast cancer as well, but um, mm-hmm. it, it seems that breast cancer has been associated with with any alcohol consumption at all. That's right. That's right. And we've known that for a while, that, any, that the um, consumption of alcohol does lead to some increase in your risk of being diagnosed with breast cancer. But I want to be clear, Tom, in 2018, when the Global Burden of Disease study came out, it wasn't just women. It was also men. The conclusion was for everybody, there is really no amount that could be considered 
perfectly safe or harmless. So, and, and that was why it was such a big departure from what we've heard all of this time. But there's another twist in this story. And that is just last year, at the end of, the, of 2022, that same group, that Global Burden of Disease Research Consortium, came out again and said, um, hold that thought. We've now reanalyzed the data. Again, we've, we've got five more years of data, but more importantly, they used more sophisticated analysis techniques. And now they're saying, now they're saying, well, actually, for some people, the consumption, they're kind of back backing up. For some people, that moderate consumption of alcohol does appear actually to be harmless in terms of its impact on all-cause mortality. It really depends on how old you are, where on the planet you live. So they so they looked at this data by region, North America, Europe, Africa, the Middle East, and by age groups and by sex, and they were able to stratify that risk across those different groups and give us a much more nuanced picture. So now we're kind of back in the soup again, <laughs> where we have to take a look at the risk of alcohol consumption, depending on where you live and how old you are and whether you're male or female. So the, the, the picture just got murky again. And we're going to talk about that murky picture a little bit more in just a second. It's Smart Nutrition. Monica Reinagle is a licensed nutritionist, an author, and a speaker. You can find her Nutrition Diva podcast and the Change Academy podcast, which focuses on the art and science of behavior change. They're available wherever you get your podcasts. And we will have more with Monica in just a few minutes. And if you've just joined us today, it's Smart Nutrition with the Nutrition Diva, Monica Reinagle. She is the host of two great podcasts, the Nutrition Diva and the Change Academy podcast. To join us, our number here is different than the number you use to pledge in the spring membership campaign. Our number at midday, 410-662-8780. You can email midday at WIPR.org. You can follow us on Twitter at midday. WIPR. And Monica, we have a caller, Beth, on the line from Ellicott City. Beth, welcome to Midday with Monica Reinagle. Hi. Thanks so much, Tom. Thanks, Monica. I've loved the show so far. I am also a WIPR member. Thank you. And I'm the founder of Sobar, which is a nonprofit that promotes the inclusion of non-alcoholic beverages at events. And I just wanted to mention that Canada has redefined their recommendation to five drinks a week recently. And we know that alcohol is an addictive substance for everyone. It's not just for some. And it's the other interesting stat recently is that it's become the number one reason for admission to emergency rooms in the state of Maryland, eclipsing heroin and fentanyl overdose for the first time ever. And so I love the rituals drinking after work, but mine's a zero-alcohol wine. And with all of the data that you've presented and from what I've read, seven different cancers being linked to alcohol. Is there really a good reason to continue to drink? Monica, what do you think? Well, first of all, just a, a quick correction of the record. There was a recommendation made by an advisory panel of Canadian scientists recommending that the guideline, the official guidelines for, say, for moderate drinking be redefined. But the Canadian government that actually issues those guidelines has not yet taken that up. We have a similar situation. Uh, system here in the United States, we have a dietary guidelines advisory committee that looks at science and makes recommendations. And then 
we actually have the dietary guidelines, which uh, don't always take all of the recommendations exactly as submitted by the advisory committee. So there are there are changes afoot in in Canada, but the official recommendations have not yet been updated. Um, but is there any reason to uh, to include alcohol in your life? That is a really interesting question. And if you are looking purely at the effects on disease risk and um, as Beth points out, it's not just about mortality. There are other harms that can come. I mean, just driving under the influence, <laughs> harms to you, harms to others um, that can come from the overuse of alcohol. But I think that we also have to acknowledge that alcohol plays a role in many of our cultural traditions that people do often perceive some benefit from consuming alcohol. There is an undeniable effect on on the brain, on on neurotransmitters. It is, for better or for worse, a rather rewarding substance. And that's the trick, right? It can it can become so rewarding, it can become habit forming. But for those who are able to consume it in safe and reasonable amounts, I think some of them would say, yeah, actually, I do get a benefit from it. And I feel like we need to allow people to weigh what benefits they're getting against what risks they may be taking. And the first step to that is having an accurate read on what those risks are. And that's why I think it's worth, you know, getting a little bit into the weeds on this topic, because there has been so much confusing and conflicting information. So if people are weighing the risks versus the benefits, let's make sure they have accurate information on what those risks are. And there certainly are people who should not drink. Um, people who are pregnant, for example, uh, yes. or people who have had a drinking problem, uh, people who have become addicted to alcohol and have, uh, you know, a substance use disorder related to alcohol. I mean, uh, at that point, there there isn't any advantage, you know, to, you know, even a drink a day or something or, you know, a drink every right. five days. I mean, there are some people who just should not have alcohol, but well, others and I would... perhaps can, can weigh the risks, as you say. I would maybe go one step further that and suggest that you don't actually have to um, identify yourself as someone who is addicted to alcohol or who is an alcoholic or you know has an a substance, a diagnosed substance abuse disorder. I would say that if you find it difficult or impossible to to consume alcohol within those safe drinking guidelines, then maybe none is better for you. Mm -hmm. And you also make the point in your podcast that when you talk about these all-cause mortality figures, yeah. um, that you know their use for individual risk assessment, you know, for me or for you or for any individual person, um, is somewhat limited, right? I mean, it's one thing to know what happens, you know, on a global scale, but yes. it's another thing to to translate that or whittle it down to what it means for an individual person. Hundred percent. I mean, this is the problem with epidemiology. It's a really great way to assess statistical probability of outcomes. It doesn't really tell us much about what will happen to any one individual. Um, and so it's a good point, you know, but but government agencies and public health agencies, when they're trying to make recommendations, they're going to start with that epidemiological evidence to, to try to give the most solid recommendations they can. But right, we need to be assessing that through our own risk tolerance, our family history. Um, you know, is there, for example, 
If you have a history of breast cancer in your family, you might see that risk much differently than if you have a, a history of heart disease in your family, because maybe at that point, the, the somewhat modest benefit on reducing heart disease risk may seem more potent. Whereas if you have a family of a history of, of breast cancer, that's totally not worth it. So yeah, the personal details matter, both in our behavior and our relationship to alcohol, whether we feel like we're in control of it and all of the other details. I do want to actually just circle back for a sec um, and thank Beth for the for the contribution that she and many other companies are making towards making a an alcohol-free lifestyle so much more enjoyable and more possible. There's been an explosion of alternatives, really good alternatives for people who enjoy beer but don't want to drink alcohol. There are wonderful non-alcoholic craft beers, and Beth's group has really promoted sophisticated, enjoyable, non-alcoholic cocktails so that for people who choose not to drink, they don't feel like they're left out of all the fun. And I know I personally really appreciate the efforts and the availability of those alternatives when I'm not enjoying an alcoholic beverage that I can have something that's really satisfying. So just a shout out to that whole movement, the whole sober curious movement and how much easier it makes it for people who do want to drink less or stop drinking entirely to still be able to participate in the fun. Yeah, absolutely. And an amen from me, to be sure. So thank you for that call, Beth. So, uh, Monica, we just have a minute or so left. I do want to talk about this uh, locale sweetener called erythritol. Um, It's a very common thing. I guess Truvia or Truvia is the most well-known brand of this. So people put it in their coffee. They they use it, you know, in in recipes. Um, What do we need to know about erythritol? Yeah, this is a surprising new finding that they kind of stumbled across by accident, but it looks like heavy, continual, habitual use of erythritol may lead to a a noticeable increase in the risk of blood clots. So it is not perhaps the free lunch that we thought it was. I don't think that um, moderate or occasional use is anything to be too worried about. But if you are looking at this particular sweetener as a way to have all the sweets all the time with no consequences, um, there may be a little bit more to that story. And um, as it turns out, we have a little bit more time than I thought we did, oh, good. Uh, which is a good thing. So we can go uh, into into this a little bit more detail. Sugar alcohols um, are what yeah. uh, are... are uh, created and they and they do occur naturally, uh, right. but this erythritol um, does have uh, is a, uh, is a, is is classified as a sugar alcohol. Right. This is just a molecule that looks a lot like sugar, it's not, but it's not sugar and it's not alcohol. By the way, it's not related to our previous. So of course, it's called way. sugar alcohol. Right. right. Exactly. It's like an egg <laughs> cream. You know, no eggs, no cream, or lake trout. But no. Um, Right. So this does occur naturally in in food, in the food supply. Our bodies can even synthesize some sugar alcohols, but in very, very low amounts. But they taste sweet. They do not contribute a lot of calories. And most importantly, they don't affect blood sugar. This is why they've gotten so popular. But now they're synthesized in a lab and used at many, many times, you know, a thousand times the quantity that you might get from your diet as a as a sweetener in a lot of different products. They're showing up everywhere. And because they are a naturally occurring ingredient, they don't necessarily have to be listed on the ingredient list. So that's a little bit of a of a problem here, especially now that there are some concerns. You may have 
a protein bar or, you know, a, a, a low calorie cocktail mix or something like that sweetened with erythritol and you may not be able to see it on the list. I don't want to be alarmist. I don't want people to be overly concerned about this. It's definitely something that we need to look into further and maybe just treat that sweetener with the same degree of moderation. That There's that word again, Tom, the same degree of moderation that you would use with actual sugar. This is something that we don't want to be consuming a lot of. Yeah. I mean, moderation in everything is right. And, and you're right because uh, the, the, the acronym is GRAS, G-R-A-S. Uh, erythritol does enjoy the status of being a generally recognized as safe ingredient. Mm-hmm. Um, we might think, oh, we can just have tons of it. Right, so we can drink, you know, seventeen, uh, you know, locale or sugar, well, so-called sugar-free sodas, uh, well, without any consequence. Right, I think, yeah, even more than the GRAS status, which I'm not sure consumers are super plugged into. It's that, like, well, it's sweet, but there's no calories, and it doesn't affect my blood sugar, so I can drink sweet tea or, or, you know, eat these sweet things all day long. It's consequence-free, and we end up over-consuming these uh, artificially sweetened people who use low calorie sweeteners i've observed tend to eat a lot more sweet stuff because they feel like it's kind of a free lunch so and you know meanwhile those foods are not usually contributing a whole lot to of nutrition to the diet and they may be displacing other foods that are so yeah we'll we'll actually have to paste that moderation label onto the calorie free sweeteners as well uh, we have a question on email uh, who's, who asks, uh, would, you, would you please discuss the importance of including substances that support a healthy gut and how this supports a healthy weight? Does alcohol a check, you know, affect uh, the, the health balance, your, your, your gut health uh, in a particular way? Or did, would a sweetener like erythritol uh, <laughs> affect your gut health in any direct way? Yeah, I don't think that alcohol has much of a direct effect because it's metabolized long before it gets to the large intestine where mm-hmm. those bacteria live. The erythritol actually may have a little bit more impact on the gut microbes. We have been looking at this because some of the other calorie-free sweeteners like um, um, Equal or Splenda seemed to have deleterious effects on the gut microbiome. The, the sugar alcohols so far have been off the hook for that. Um, and this is really the first cloud on the horizon that I'm aware of for the sugar alcohols in terms of um, negative effects on health. And as I say, they found it by accident. You know, it wasn't the kind of thing that would emerge in the sort of safety studies that earn you that generally recognized as safe status. It was an incidental finding looking at a big data set where they're like, hmm, that's interesting. And then they they started to go down that, that um, path a little bit and found more. Yeah, and there's something called the Calorie Control Council, which is the industry yeah. group for people who do low-cal and no-calorie foods and beverages. And they talk about all your know, decades of research, and you say, eh, not so fast. I mean, it's it's not. There are a lot of things that uh, remain to be uh, uh, researched and and studied, and they just haven't gotten around to that yet. Yes, and, and I think now that we've gotten this first um, round of findings, I imagine there will be some additional research and more will be revealed. In the meantime, we can just take that into account as we're making our choices. And uh, this final email from David, which I can answer, is Monica Reinagle, the wonderful opera singer? And the answer to that, David, is yes, she is. 
<laughs> and I happen to have known that for a long time. A so long she, time. She is the nutrition diva, but she's also a diva diva, Monica Reinagle. And she is the host of the Nutrition Diva podcast and the Change Academy podcast. Thanks so much, Monica. I appreciate it. And uh, we'll talk again soon, I hope. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Tom.